You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, seeks to improve the quality of healthcare in America. We want to make healthcare better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast or have any comments or concerns, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. In this episode, we celebrate two great supporters of NCQA's projects, Elevance Health and the Pew Charitable Trusts. Our first interview, recorded live this month at our first Health Innovation Summit, features Elevance Health's first health equity leader. Our second is a discussion of antibiotic stewardship with experts representing both Pew and NCQA. First, we present the second of three planned interviews on health equity conducted with support from Elevance Health. In this interview, you'll hear about Elevance Health's commitment to bridging gaps in health equity. And in fact, they are participants in the first cohort of NCQA's health equity accreditation programs. Going through the accreditation process helps organizations learn the importance of gathering data to reduce disparities and achieve better, more accurate patient outcomes. Improving equity also means internal change. Organizations align their staff and leadership around policies of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Accredited organizations are distinguished from their peers as well, appealing to payers and regulators as business partners with a strong commitment to improving health equity. My guest was Daryl M. Gray II. MD, MPH, FACG, and the first Chief Health Equity Officer for Elevance Health. Dr. Gray is an outspoken health equity advocate, a clinical and policy expert, and a passionate voice for a better healthcare system. As the inaugural Chief Health Equity Officer for Elevance Health, he leads the execution of a comprehensive strategy to advance health equity through a whole health approach which addresses physical, behavioral, social, and pharmacy needs among Elevance Health's more than 45 million members and their respective communities. Dr. Gray serves in multiple national and local organizations, aiming to advance health equity through innovation in community engagement, care delivery, research, and patient and provider education. He is co-founder of the Association of Black Gastroenterologists and Hepatologists and is past chair of the American College of Gastroenterology's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Dr. Gray trained in medicine at Howard University College of Medicine and completed his residency at Duke University Medical Center with a gastroenterology fellowship at Washington University. He earned his Master of Public Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health as a Commonwealth Fund Fellow. And Dr. Gray leads by example. I recorded him live at NCQA's Health Innovation Summit at the top of November. Shortly after this interview, Dr. Gray then appeared on a panel at a summit seminar titled Health Equity Trailblazers, Where Vision Meets Commitment. 
and he was with a cadre of diversity experts, including past Inside Healthcare guests Vanessa Guzman and Abner Mason. By the way, that's a hint that when you're done listening to this show, you should go back and listen to past shows, and you'll find them in episodes 63 and 82. I asked Dr. Gray what it means to be the first ever chief health equity officer at Elevance Health, and anticipating that many more American organizations will create similar positions, he discussed how young professionals from a variety of training backgrounds and majors could consider themselves equipped for such a job. But first, I asked Dr. Gray about the Trailblazers seminar in light of the growing focus on equity throughout the healthcare world. Tell me about the seminar. As of right now, sitting here, you haven't done the seminar yet. <laughs> Not yet. Um, so I want to ask you about the seminar in terms of the fact that we're here in D.C. at a four-day healthcare event, a, a nice big one, over 1,300 people here. <laughs> and um, we are going out of our way. NCQA is having a health equity-based uh, seminar. And that's all we're talking about at this seminar. And as many people, leaders, as we could get on, on the stage. Mm -hmm. So for that, coupled with other kinds of DEI initiatives that this company and other companies and Elevance Health, mm -hmm. um, tell me how things are in, in the world of health equity. Yeah, so, you know, it's... It's really great to be here at the NCQA Health Innovation Summit, and I think the session that you just introduced that we'll, I'll be speaking at later is really a opportunity for organizations, and there's such a plethora of organizations here at the summit, to kind of move beyond and understand how organizations like Elevance Health have moved beyond the idea of health equity, right, the imperative of health equity, to actually operationalizing, well, how do you make that a reality? How do you move the needle towards that? What strategy can you put in place? And, and how can you impact people uh, in a way that's meaningful for them? And so what this session is going to be is a culmination of leaders from different organizations talking about how they're doing just that. And I'm, I'm truly honored to be a part of that conversation. So in this evolution for NCQA, talking about ourselves, um, we decided to do just what you said and mm -hmm. uh, not just be talking about equity and how important it is, but to create some initiatives for it. We created our health equity accreditation series, which is uh, dual programs. There's health equity accreditation and health equity accreditation plus, which is uh, for the most part, more geared towards companies that already had mm -hmm. uh, something in place. Mm -hmm. um, so it's uh, more difficult to be able to qualify for that. But guess what? For Elevance Health, uh, Elevance Health is one of, I believe, nine That's companies right. in the first cohort of companies trying out HEA who qualified for both HEA and Health Equity Accreditation Plus. So yes. tell, me about, tell me about that. Well, well, first, I really appreciate how the NCQA has applied rigor to assessing programs, uh, assessing health systems, assessing, assessing health plans their rigor in actually moving beyond intention to operation and impact. And we were very fortunate to be one of nine of those health plans and health systems across the nation um, who participated in a pilot with the NCQA and actually were awarded both, as you mentioned, NCQA Health Equity Accreditation, but also Health Equity Plus Accreditation. That was with our Simply Healthcare Florida plan. And really, I, I think it further demonstrates our commitment uh, to that kind of rigor to better serve those 
people who those 45 plus million people that you just mentioned that we get to serve each and every day. And so for us, this is, you know, the pilot was one program, but we certainly will not rest on the laurels of that. And we're really excited about expanding this um, rigor to our other parts of our health plans. So I want to step way back. Yes, please do. Way, 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 way back. Um, instead of talking about health equity, let's start by defining yes. health equity. So give me your, de and, and again, this changes from yes. person to person sometimes, but before we talk about health equity, what is your definition? Explain to me what it is, what yeah. it means, um, and uh, what's, what's missing in American life. You know, we at Elevance Health really align with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation of Health Equity, which means ensuring that everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. And what that requires is that, that and I'll take a step back, because that's distinct from equality. Equality as a process is really a one-size-fits-all. It, it, would, it would be like, David, I recognize that you're from Pikesville, um, you have, you know, your family and your background, but regardless of your background and regardless of mine, being from a different place, have a different family structure, different lived experiences, look, we're going to give both of us the same resources and, and hope that we both will achieve an optimal outcome. That we both know, David, that that's not the case. And so equity, as opposed to equality, says that we must give a more personalized approach and personalized experience in someone's care journey to achieve that optimal level of health for both of us. And so as we think about those people we get to serve, regardless of their race, ethnicity, age, sex, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, you know, whether, they, whether or not they have a, uh, are living with a disability, um, we want to provide that personalized experience that allows them to achieve their optimal health possible. And so for us, as we think about health equity, we even think about, more importantly, how do we operationalize that? And for us, what we call our approach to achieving health equity is health equity by design. Because David, you know that we won't achieve health equity by happenstance or chance or because we want, just wish it to happen or want it to happen. It must be intentional. And we must embed it into our practices, our programs, our processes, how we capture and utilize data and how we report on it. Health equity must be embedded across all our lives, lines of business in all that we do. And we call that health equity by design. And that's a more proactive than a reactive approach. And so that is how we are approaching health equity, and that's how we define it. It's, it's not something you turn on and turn off. No. It's, no. it's not something that you it, sort of throw something it, at the situation like it's a... It, and it's not a product, right? Right. So, you know, it, it, it's very easy to say, well, what product are you going to offer that is a health equity product, right? We're, we're drawing our line in the sand and saying, regardless of the program, the the product design, the offering, the benefit, we're integrating health equity on the front end of designing that. Uh, because like, I, I think back to, I think it was Dr. Paul Batowden who said it first, you know, every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. And so we are designing for the results that we want to get, which is achieving health equity. It's, it's almost like the most universal what do you call it? SDOH kind of. <laughs> yeah. We've been talking about person-centered outcomes. Yes. And not person-centered oriented outcomes. No, person-centered outcomes, which means, for example, somebody walks in as a patient, walks into an office, and they're the patient. Mm -hmm. They are not the receptacle for your wisdom or your uh, prescriptions or whatever. They're, yeah. the, now, they're the patient, and if you want to know what they need, you should be asking them and qualifying. And, and you might not be able to get into one 
question. Yeah. <clears throat> but you need to ask them and you need to qualify them uh, in order to find out who that individual is and every single factor that you can think of, yeah. whether they're social determinants or whether it's you know just talking about them as an individual and their background. Absolutely. But guess what? Even before you can get to that point, mm-hmm. you have to have a relationship, right? So you think about, you know, I, you, you and I both, I think about patient provider relationship because I've been a provider. I've been at the bedside, but I've also been in community. And before we can have discussions, meaningful discussions or a meaningful connection to be able to provide actionable uh, impact, it starts with a relationship and that relationship starts with trust. And so certainly as I think about our approach to advancing health equity, it, it starts with that. We want to be a lifetime trusted health partner. That is incredibly ambitious. But that means that in everything that we do, we have to be thinking about, like you mentioned, that person-centered care. How do we approach the person, the individual, in a way that they prefer, in a way that resonates and communicates, in, in a way that's humble, that approaches them with cultural humility throughout the interaction? One of the solutions that we've discussed on this show to get you closer to, there aren't no, there's no panaceas here, but mm-hmm. one solution that gets us closer to fine in terms of what you're talking about is identifying CBOs, finding some community-based organizations that are already in place and that know where they are in terms of building up the trust with that community. So if you're a big a a larger company Mm -hmm. coming from the outside in and you want to be able to provide services to a community we could honestly you could assume um it's not even being negative you could assume nowadays especially after three years or so of of a Mm -hmm. pandemic Mm -hmm. that there's going to be a lot of mistrust uh, distrust deep distrust Mm -hmm. for anything dealing with the medical community coming at you um and some of it is uh, it's not that uh, people there might not like anything. They've just yeah. been told over and over, oh, yeah. if you could take care of it yourself, do it yourself. You could stay home, stay home. You could stay away from the clinic, stay away mm-hmm. from the hospital. You don't want to be near anybody else. You know, but at some point, mm-hmm. uh, somebody's going to come in and say, okay, we have a great service for you. It might even be remote care. And mm-hmm. by then, people have a knee-jerk reaction. And we need to rebuild trust. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about working with uh, local groups yeah. and working on a community basis, maybe even on a city yeah. basis. You know, what you said is critically important, and I don't want to kind of skip past your message around mistrust. And, you know, much of the mistrust of the healthcare system is well-earned because we in the healthcare system, I, I, I include myself and peers in it over years, over decades, over centuries, have not been trusted brokers um, as we think about communities, as we think about patients. And I think certainly we have made strides over time to be a more trusted broker of health, and we still have more work to do. To your point, I think it's not just about the message that we want to bring and share with communities, uh, having that reliable message amidst, uh, as you mentioned, I think you said a panacea of disinformation or misinformation, um, but it's also having a trusted messenger. And so that's where partnerships are so meaningful. And whether that is partnering with a community-based organization, a faith-based organization, we have to identify and partner with those trusted messengers. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, part of also what you're mentioning that I don't want to kind of skip past as well with this is that it is most often those who are in communities 
who are most proximal to the inequities or the problems, who also have the most innovative and impactful solutions. And so as we think about um, how we get to health equity, it is definitely by engaging with community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, and other trusted messengers uh, to, to help us to partner better in co-designing solutions with those whom we serve. And so I, I think about that at the large scale of what we're doing at the enterprise, yeah. across the enterprise, but I also think about how we bring that very much local into that, our That's local what I was going to ask you. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, uh, we're all fortunate that you're in the position that yeah. you're in and that yeah. that position was created by Elevance Health. Yeah. But you're so high up in the a echelon right now yeah. that uh, it's great we're having this conversation, but how does Elevance Health... I would say trickle down, I mean, this, yeah. this idea. How do they communicate these ideas and how do they uh, educate, which is the best way I could say it, educate to action yeah. uh, their, uh, the subsidiaries of the company yeah. all the way down to the community level? You know, what's so awesome is that, our, to, your, to your point, our company is very grand in scale. We have, you know, we're pushing up towards 100,000 associates. But what, what's awesome about that sample is that we represent the face of America. And because of that, our greatest asset, our employees, our associates are also people in communities of those whom we serve. And so as I think about our messengers, we have messengers within our organization who are from the communities that we want to serve. But also, as we seek and search out and accrue talent from communities, we leverage them in that way as well. And so they want to be active in the community. I think about, just as one example, I think about our health equity directors, particularly those people who are serving locally in states, particularly like our, our Medicaid health equity directors. Those are people in the ground who have built relationships over time, even before they joined us at Elevance Health. Mm -hmm. But those people also have kind of either a mental or physical catalog, a community asset map of those trusted messages, those community-based organizations, those faith-based organizations, with whom we can partner to co-design interventions, whether the intervention is around maternal health, whether it's around behavioral health, or some other pressing need in the community, yeah. as we think about social determinants or social drivers of health or health-related social needs, it's the people that help to make it happen. And those people, they are part of our workforce. So now I want to ask about you without necessarily asking about you. Yeah. Uh, remind me again your title with Elevance Health. So I get to serve as Chief Health Equity Officer at Elevance Health. And who had the job before you? No one. <laughs> and when did you get the job? August of 2021. Okay. So without getting into details about yes. Elevance Health itself, um, this is uh, indicative of a change. Yes. It's a train. Yes. It's not going to stop. It's, and it's, it's a wonderment, and it does involve a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of work on a social level of people realizing things have to change all the way across, just like you were saying before. Yes. Tell me about your own career track. Yeah. Um, and what led you to this point? I mean, academically, what led you to this yeah, point? Yeah. But also, what, what led you to the point of feeling like you were prepared for a position like this? Uh, and really, I wanted to be talking to other people who might have a similar background and would yeah, yeah. be interested. There are not right now there aren't not that many chief health equity officers yes. or chief equity officers and as there will be in the next couple of years yeah i'm sure yeah, yeah. um so we need to figure out who's going to be the pool 
mm-hmm. to, to choose from. And those people are out there. They just they might not know a lot about your kind of position and um, and what they do. So tell me about you and your background and what you think led you to a position like this. Yeah, and two, I think your point is well taken. You know, there has been an emergence of chief health equity officers, and it is in response to a need. It is, you know, what I've noticed, it is not just kind of fluff or talk and people just being put, you know, having titles put to their name. Companies are really committed to action and seeing change. And frankly, it's it's very much more than a social and moral imperative, which it is. It is also a very much a business imperative. If you want to be impactful as a company and serving members, there needs to be a health equity agenda and not just an agenda, but actions. And so as I think about, you know, my career, that trajectory that kind of led me to this place, I'll be honest, if, if you would have asked me, David, when I was, I don't know, 10 years old, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if you would have asked me, you know, I don't know, just a few years ago, if I would have envisioned myself as chief health equity officer um, for a health company, um, I probably would have told you, no, I don't envision that. But, and it wasn't because I had any disdain or dislike or, or, or for that. I just didn't necessarily envision that being my pathway. And I'll say, I'll be, I'll be frank and transparent with you. I, I feel this one thing has built upon another and I have been led in this direction. And this is part of my, um, I feel my purpose and, and I'm really enjoying it. But the, the kind of milestones, if you will, along the way, um, you know, I, I pursued college with a love for sciences and a love for community engagement. And that kind of materialized more into me going into medical school to learn how I could apply that love to a better knowledge of the science, a better knowledge of of human anatomy and physiology, how to uh, identify and treat and manage illness. But as I did that and and started to find my way into kind of my niche where I could, felt as though I could make an impact, which kind of materialized in gastroenterology. I'll say candidly, at one point I did want to be a cardiologist, but I saw the light in gastroenterology (laughs) and and really impacting particularly as I think about those impacted by colon cancer. And, and I can talk for days about colon cancer and those populations that are disproportionately impacted. But what I recognize, David, is that um, I also had some knowledge gaps kind of getting there. And my knowledge gap was bringing that public health and health policy lens. How could I translate a small program in a city of St. Louis where I was, a patient navigation program, navigating people from the community in churches specifically to getting primary care and then getting specialty care for colorectal cancer screening. How can I translate that from a small city program into potentially something that can impact a nation or something that resonates with policymakers? And that's what led me to getting an MPH and, and being a fellow in the Commonwealth Fund Fellowship in Minority Health Policy. And so that led to then an academic career where I spent a lot of my time doing community-based participatory research. What that means is doing research with communities, not just to communities, right. co-designing with them, implementing with them, and then disseminating the knowledge with them, and being at the bedside. So a combination of bedside, a combination of research, a combination of community activism and engagement. That's what led me to it, to kind of, I feel, be equipped uh, to, to be in this role currently, because I'm able to bring the lens from the bedside, I'm able to bring the lens from the community, I'm able to bring, bring the lens, the analytical lens from research um, to this work. I don't think everyone who pursues a role in a company for a chief health equity officer needs those credentials 
or needs those qualifications that kind of led me into this path. Yeah. Um, but I think that there has to be experience in strategy, in operationalizing strategy, in bringing vision from the point of vision to actually having impact. And there has to be kind of a, a mindset and a commitment to servant leadership uh, to, to operate in this role. Elevance Health Chief Health Equity Officer, Dr. Daryl Gray. Check out the links in this episode's description to find out more about Dr. Gray and his work and about the efforts of Elevance Health as they strive to close the gaps in health equity. November 18th to 24th, 2022 is Antibiotic Awareness Week. Last year, in 2021, NCQA began designing a multi-tiered antibiotic stewardship program with support from the Pew Charitable Trusts. Our program aligns with Pew's Antibiotic Resistance Project, which seeks to advance antibiotic stewardship efforts across healthcare settings in order to combat the growing threat of antibiotic resistance. The NCQA project includes a toolkit with webinars and written summaries that outline best practices, emerging trends, and lessons from the field about savvy stewardship of antibiotics. More on that later. There's also an honor roll, a list of top-performing health plans identified by NCQA researchers based on HEDIS measures of appropriate use of antibiotic medications. Nearly 200 health plans met or exceeded NCQA's high-performance threshold, denoting them as responsible stewards of antibiotics use in treatment. What does it mean to be an antibiotic steward, and why is it important? In this interview, conducted with support from our partners at the Pew Charitable Trusts, we hear from Dr. David Hyun, who directs Pew's Antibiotic Resistance Project, and NCQA's Assistant Vice President for Performance Measurement, Dr. Safine Byron. Here's a bit about them. Dr. David Hyun is a pediatrician with a specialty in infectious diseases. He directs Pew's Antibiotic Resistance Project, which supports policies that remove regulatory, economic, and scientific obstacles to the discovery of new antibiotics, while ensuring that antibiotics are prescribed only when necessary. Before joining Pew, Dr. Hyun practiced medicine at Children's National Medical Center, where he developed and co-chaired the Antibiotic Stewardship Program. He received a bachelor's in chemistry from the University of Minnesota, got his medical training at Ohio State University's College of Medicine, and completed his residency in pediatrics at Indiana University with a fellowship program in pediatric infectious disease at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Safine Byron has spent over 15 years with NCQA as an expert in performance measurement. In the past, her work focused on measures in the area of respiratory care and preventive services, as well as on projects to reduce healthcare disparities. Dr. Byron earned a Master's of Health Science from Hopkins before earning her doctorate in public health from the University of North Carolina. And now for the interview, Dr. Hyun starts us off by telling us what stewardship is all about. When we say antibiotic steward in the, gen in the most general sense, what we really mean is being judicious and responsible of how we use antibiotics. And so that means also means we don't, we only use it when it's truly necessary and um, we use the right type of antibiotic for the right length of time. When we say antibiotic stewardship programs, more specifically in healthcare settings, what we mean is 
um, there are these specific systems of, and programs in place that are designed to help clinicians and prescribers make the best decision possible when it comes to antibiotic treatment. So what this primarily looks like, and for most cases, and especially in hospital settings, is um, it requires some degree of being able to measure and describe how an individual clinician is prescribing antibiotics for their patients, and then compare those um, prescribing patterns with other peer clinicians or prescribers, and really try to find areas where there's room for improvement to, um, for those individual clinicians and to, with the ultimate goal of reducing um, the amount of un, potentially unnecessary or inappropriate antibiotic use. And of course, the main reason antibiotic stewardship programs became to become in existence was because we were trying to find ways to slow down the emergence of antibiotic resistance. So talking about antibiotic resistance, what does it mean uh, when you say that bacteria are resistant to antibiotics, what's actually the, the mechanism? Uh, and how can antibiotics contribute to antibiotic resistance? Yeah, antibiotic resistance happens um, when a bacteria um, learns how to evade the mechanisms of antibiotics that are really designed there to kill the bacteria. So um, it's it happens when bacteria learns this through mutations and, and genetic changes. And the, the reason why bacteria has this even, even an opportunity to develop resistance is because they obviously have opportunities for exposure, uh, where they're exposed to different types of antibiotics and have this ability to learn from their environmental exposure. So that's why the more antibiotics we use, that means we're providing more opportunities for bacteria to learn how to evolve and defend against the effects of antibiotics. And that's why it's so important that we try to minimize and reduce unnecessary or inappropriate antibiotic use so that we, get, we can really try to slow down the emergence of these resistance that are happening um, uh, across the different types of bacteria. So how widespread of a problem is antibiotic resistance? And like you said, we're slowing it down. What can be done to slow down the spread of antibiotic resistance? Yeah, antibiotic resistance is already here. Um, a lot of um, people may mistakenly think that it's it's a problem that's some that's in the future that we're trying to prevent altogether, but it's already here. And CDC estimates that in 2019, they estimated approximately about 2.8 million people um, each year contracting some uh, uh, contracting an infection with an antibiotic resistant bacteria, and somewhere around 35,000 people dying from those infections. Um, there's also global estimates that um, place the number of people dying from antibiotic resistant infections around uh, 1 million back in 2019. And just to put that in context, that's actually higher than the number of people who died from HIV and the number of people who died from malaria in the same year. So it's it's, it's already a big problem. What we're trying to prevent is really, to, what we're trying to do is prevent it from becoming a larger problem, problem um, than it already is. And this is where antibiotic stewardship can play a very important role, as we talked about. Um, and the, one of the main challenges of antibiotic stewardship right now is that it's not 
of it's not in place. The practice of antibiotic stewardship is not in place across all healthcare settings um, in, in the United States or even globally. And what, a very good example of where the biggest gap is right now in terms of trying to find ways to improve antibiotic use is what we call it in, in the outpatient setting. So these are your doctor's offices and urgent care centers and other clinics that are out there. And they, they it's estimated about 80% of antibiotics prescribed in the United States are being prescribed in the outpatient setting, yet the significant majority of these practices don't have systems or programs or activities in place to try to reduce inappropriate or unnecessary antibiotic use. So that's one of the main challenges moving forward is to try to find ways to support um, clinicians in outpatient settings to adopt and put into practice antibiotic stewardship efforts so that they can try to make some uh, improvements and try to reduce inappropriate or unnecessary antibiotic prescribing in these settings. When you have overuse of antibiotics in some situations, then you have a possibility that suddenly people are not as immune as they should be or they would expect or the clinicians would expect them to be to whatever they're trying to fight against. And when it builds to a population scale, then you have more opportunity for whatever the bacteria or whatever the viruses are that are spreading to be allowed to mutate within the uh, population. And then that makes it even more complicated, not just more difficult, but more complex in trying to figure out, is there any you know single kind of panacea that we can give uh, across a population to be able to fight against these mutations? Um, is is am I correct in that? Is that uh, one of the the challenges? And it just ends up escalating from there. Yeah, you, you know, it, you're right in the sense that you know we're trying to prevent this becoming a large scale problem where it becomes a a public health problem where it's it's in, it's it's affecting potentially um, the lives um, at a large population level. Um, and the, going back to the, the mechanisms of how, or, or the reasons why antibiotic resistance can happen, it's, it's really about the this, the populate, when we talk about the antibiotic resistance emerging, it's really the changes that are happening in the bacteria um, rather than us in humans or in patients. So it's, it's, it's really about what kind of bacteria that are out there in the environment that are that we are we we as humans are constantly being exposed to and the more resistant those bacteria in the environment are the more likely that we who come into exposures and especially when our immune systems are down or we have you know cuts in our skin and there's opportunities for bacteria to create infections in our body if that pool of bacteria in the environment is already at a high resistant level, then when those same bacteria causes infection in us, it just becomes that much more difficult to treat. And then to talk, kind of translating that to what you were saying at the population level, the more widespread this is, the more likely that it's going to be, it could spread from human to human, from one environment to another environment. And if, you know, we, what we really don't want is a situation where it's the significant majority of bacteria in the environment, on our skin, in our, uh, the, the, in our exposures, are those types that are no longer responsive to the antibiotics that we currently have available, and which means that which means that we won't be able to treat these infections effectively as we do now. And I, I would also say that you know I mentioned earlier that you know the, these infections are already here; these antibiotic resistant infections are already here. If you talk to infectious disease doctors, 
uh, or other um, intensivists in, in, in hospitals, they'll tell you they'll, they'll tell you more than one cases or stories of patients where they had to manage that were infected with a bacteria that was resistant to pretty much all antibiotics they have available. So that scenario is already playing out. Uh, on a case-by-case basis if you talk to the doctors in the hospital settings. And what, what is even more concerning is that there is that possibility that, that, the, that the numbers can continue to rise and we, these cases become more and more frequent. Um, uh, and even the most simplest infections that we treat right now because we take antibiotics for granted may become um, difficult or in some cases impossible to treat. Okay, so switching over, we're going to ask Dr. Byron, um, first of all, for the NCQA side, tell us about HEDIS. So HEDIS is something that we bring up this term a lot uh, on the show, and a lot of the people listening are familiar with it, but that's why I don't uh, I don't tell everybody what it stands for. But in this case, let's let's do that. It's the Healthcare Effectiveness Data and Information Set. And that's what HEDIS is. That's what HEDIS is. So uh, give us, uh, please, a, a brief description of uh, HEDIS. Yep, you got that acronym right. Um, so HEDIS is a set of measures that are used to assess whether health plans are providing or coordinating the care for their members. So we think that health plans have a role here in terms of really making sure that their members are getting the right services for um, their health. Uh, for managing chronic conditions and, and those sorts of things. So the HEDIS measures really address a lot of different important dimensions of care, you know, such as preventive services and screenings, whether or not they got follow-up visits for chronic conditions and whether or not um, behavioral health care access is available. Okay, so drilling down into the HEDIS measures, and there are many, many, many of them. HEDIS has been continually uh, developed for a very long time now. NCQA has been around since 1990, so HEDIS uh, has certainly had time for uh, quite a number of measures. And within there, there are measures that are related to antibiotic use, to monitoring antibiotic use. So tell us about those measures. Yeah, that's right. So we do have a set of four measures in HEDIS that address antibiotic use. And we're really looking at really common conditions, common respiratory conditions for which we often see unsafe prescribing happens. So three of the measures are looking to see that unsafe prescribing practices are avoided uh, for acute bronchitis, pharyngitis, and upper respiratory infection. And then there's a fourth measure that looks at a health plan's overall prescribing across all respiratory conditions. And so if a health plan tracks these four measures, they're able to really see whether prescribing is in line with what they would expect to see. Um, whether or not prescribing for the, um, you know, for the unsafe uh, conditions is, is low and whether or not their overall prescribing sort of, you know, tracks to what they're seeing in the inappropriate measures. So we're here today talking with and talking about a, a program, a project that's uh, going on between NCQA now and supported by uh, the Pew Charitable Trusts. Um, tell us about that project. It's related to antibiotics, uh, promoting antibiotic use among health plans. Uh, so mm-hmm. tell us more about the, the project and how it relates to the HEDIS measures. Yeah, we are really grateful to the Pew Charitable Trust for supporting this project that really underscores the role of the pair in antibiotic stewardship. 
Um, for this project, we highlighted health plans who are responsible stewards in antibiotic use, uh, and we identified these health plans by looking at how they performed on those HEDIS measures. Uh, and then in order to dig a little bit more deeply into what these health plans are doing, you know, what strategies are they using, how are they getting over barriers to better antibiotic use uh, among their members, we interviewed a set of diverse plans and asked them what were they doing um, because we wanted to really document those best practices and be able to disseminate those, you know, across um, any other health plans who, who are interested in in participating in antibiotic stewardship. Uh, we also created a series of webinars that also highlight antibiotic stewardship, and we created a webpage that uh, highlighted all of these, these activities and is a, is a source, is really, we wanted to have a resource that people could use if they really wanted to think about, you know, what could be done um, to promote better antibiotic use. It's wonderful. It's it's great to become the hub of something as important as this. And then not only do you have a repository for the information, the data that you built up, a repository for learning materials for health plans and, and anybody on the inside who wants to start understanding what this kind of stewardship is about, you also start to hear common themes, common uh, threads across health plans, uh, and including, like you said, some health plans that have already been on the stick in, in trying to figure out what are we going to do about this and how do we communicate it to clinicians and to the people who work uh, under us to, to make sure that they're not over-prescribing antibiotics and what the uh, the damaging results are uh, today, not that they will be, that are already happening today. Um, so what are some of the common themes that, that you're seeing from health plans regarding to improving antibiotic stewardship? Um, what are they doing already and what can we learn from them? What can uh, health plans do uh, to uh, to address this to tackle the issue? Yeah, so the health plans we talked to shared actually a range of tools that they implement to improve antibiotic use. Um, several plans told us that they reach out and work directly with clinicians who are in their network. And so they did a lot of work providing educational materials, you know, giving physicians and others tools to um, respond to patients who might come in demanding antibiotics. Um, they also included pharmacists in terms of their outreach, you know, so pharmacists have a lot of, uh, have a role to play in terms of really helping patients understand, you know, the different kinds of medications that are out there, when they're appropriate to use, when they're not appropriate to use. And so there was a great deal of physician education um, that goes on and clinician education uh, among the plans. Um, plans also reached out directly to their members. And so, you know, as their health plan, they have access to, to their membership and they sent out materials and educational materials again to say, you know, when do you need an antibiotic? Most importantly, when do you not need an antibiotic? A lot of these plans targeted times of, um, you know, sort of, seasonal allergies or when you tend to see an increase in colds and other conditions that really shouldn't be treated with antibiotics. So they, they tried to get ahead of that and, you know, talk to their, their members and say, hey, here, how do you know the difference between a cold and something that could need an antibiotic? And so really practical tips for patients, um, 
you know, trying to sort of head them off before they start to think that they need an antibiotic. Um, and, you know, another thing that plans pointed out is using value-based payment strategies. And so in these cases, plans actually did things like use HEDIS measures and um, look at the performance across their clinicians and use financial incentives to get the clinicians on board in terms of avoiding unsafe antibiotic practices. Um, and then last, all the, all the plans used their heaters measures to ensure that they were, you know, were performing where they thought they should be uh, to be able to track whether or not their interventions had led to improvements in, in prescribing um, and to really just keep an eye on it, knowing how important it is to, to be able to understand how it's, it's happening in their network. Yeah, with a project like this, a little means a lot. I mean, there, yeah. you can never <laughs> do too little in order to, to start pushing things in the right direction. Um, uh, and uh, I know we talked before the interview about how e even the information that you're putting online, the educational materials, even though we're talking about health plans, all of this uh, will come down to the individuals. It, it, it's helpful not just for a huge plan and, or for hospital administrators. It's also helpful information or for them to find a way of communicating this to the ground level, to individual patients. Okay especially as we have more patients who are receiving care at home. Uh, sometimes they're there with caretakers uh, and with people who are doing visitations. Sometimes patients are receiving care at home. They're happy in that situation, but they're alone at home and they need to find ways of advocating for themselves. Um, so, uh, and I'm also noticing when we're talking about pharmacy, I'm very glad that pharmacists are being included in this as well, because oftentimes they are, the last uh, wall of defense for advocating for a patient. If a patient has a number of different clinicians that they just end up having to go through uh, in their healthcare journey, eventually they might get to the pharmacy and the pharmacist hopefully has the list of everything that everybody has given them and when, uh, and they might actually question whether now is the right time for you to receive this med or this specific dose, or they might tell you to advise a patient to maybe go back to that doctor and say, you know, I, I was just taking this, you know, uh, a couple of months ago. I, I think it might be too soon. I'm being advised it's too soon for me to to go back into, or maybe there's an alternative um, med that I'd be able to take. Let me ask you uh, about the educational series um, that NCQA is putting together with um, help and support from Pew. So tell me about the educational uh, series and what are the materials that we have online right now? What are you uh, planning on developing? Yeah, so um, yes, as part of this project, we developed and conducted a series of five freely available webinars. It's a dedicated chapter of NCQA's quality innovation series. Um, and, you know, we really wanted to pull in experts who were on the ground and really, you know, in the field trying to promote antibiotic stewardship. So we put in physicians and researchers who were from Intermountain Healthcare, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, Kaiser Permanente Washington. And they were able to share some really interesting tools that, again, could be directed at clinicians, you know, so we actually had um, you know, we had someone share just the tools that they actually implemented within their office signs, um, you know, 
patient educational pamphlets that were in the waiting room, um, as well as really sort of little tools like getting physicians to sort of commit uh, and sign a paper that said, I'm going to uh, really think twice before prescribing an antibiotic, so really kind of pushing for physician accountability. Those were the sorts of tools that our experts shared during the webinar series. Um, we also had one that looked at how they used quality measures to monitor uh, use and show these to clinicians so that they could understand their own prescribing practices. Uh, we had an interesting webinar that looked at addressing the social and behavioral drivers of prescribing antibiotics, and that was really fascinating to really think about this as really a social issue because, you know, um, sometimes patients will come in and, and they're doing things because of, not necessarily because they, they feel very insistent on having an, anti, having an antibiotic, but there may just be drivers outside of that that are pushing them to believe they need it. Um, we also talked about the impact of COVID, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the push towards telehealth and whether or not, you know, that was affecting antibiotic use. Um, and then we actually had two speakers from the health plans that we interviewed, and they shared their on-the-ground tactics as well for improving antibiotic use. So it's a great series. It's available on our dedicated website, and so we really encourage folks to go take a look at those. So Dr. Fryer, uh, first, um, I'm looking 10 years down the road. And in terms of antibiotics stewardship, in terms of the education and outreach that you're doing right now, how should things look um, for health plans and the way that they deal with stewardship and deal with educating uh, whoever's working underneath them? How should things look in 10 years? That would be beneficial to everybody, but also in terms of uh, the project that you're doing with Pew right now. Um, how do you think things should look in 10 years? Well, of course, ideally, what we would love to see is that health plans are implementing these tools, are taking the best practices that we have outlined here in this project, and that we actually see within the HEDIS measures vast improvement. In fact, it would be my dream to be able to retire these HEDIS measures because, um, you know, one way, one reason that NCQA retires measures is because we see no opportunity for improvement. Um, and I would love to be able to say, hey, um, prescribing, unsafe prescribing practices are not happening. These measures are no longer needed. I mean, that would really be the ideal. And for Dr. Hyun, uh, the same question, but let me ask about population benefits. So 10 years from now, as uh, antibiotic stewardship uh, improves and progresses, uh, what would we see in, in the country? What would we see in the world as far as the health population benefits? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think most immediately, you know, you know, going beyond seeing the number of antibiotic prescribed across the country and across the world being coming down, um, I think all, if we could start seeing those numbers also being translated into the number of antibiotic-resistant infections decreasing, um, it, I, I don't think we'll be, you know, even in the best, best, most, you know, the most optimistic scenario, I don't think we would imagine that, you know, resistant infections completely going away in 10 years. But if we can see a downward trend, both in not only just in the hospital settings, but also in the community, the infections that are coming in from the community settings, that would be, that would be a remarkable achievement. Um, I, I would, you know, one of the things I would say is one of the reasons we are very optimistic 
that and, and confident that antibiotic stewardship will work across all healthcare settings is because the effectiveness has been um, demonstrated in hospital settings where antibiotic stewardship programs ha are mostly in place across most of the hospitals in the United States. And as a result, we are seeing very significant benefits, not just from reduction of number of resistant infections, but also from a quality of care and a patient safety standpoint. We're seeing far fewer adverse events from antibiotics um, that can happen and, and potentially, you know, the adverse effects of receiving the wrong type of treatment. Um, one of the things that COVID-19, unfortunately, the pandemic has brought upon us is because it stretched the resources so thin that we started seeing backward trends, according to CDC, um, during the pandemic, where antibiotic resistant infection, not the numbers of antibiotic resistant infections in the hospitals, which had been coming down as, as, a, as, a, as a part of the results of, seeing, of these antibiotic stewardship programs being in place, started going back up again. So this once again really illustrates that this is a, you know, it's a very fluid situation. We need to find a way, hopefully in the next 10 years, where we not only have antibiotic stewardship programs in place across hospitals and also in community outpatient settings, but we need to build these programs in a very sustainable and resilient manner where stressors like a pandemic or other public health emergencies do not um, create cracks in the system where we could see back, you know, we could see situations like we did where all that progress is undone um, in a matter of a short time. So that's, I think, overall, I think that's kind of where we would like to see um, antibiotic stewardship go in the next 10 years. Words of hope behind fierce determination from Dr. David Hyun of the Pew Charitable Trust's Antibiotic Resistance Project and from NCQA's Dr. Safine Byron, Assistant Vice President for Performance Measurement. I always include links to my sources in the episode descriptions, but in this case, I really encourage you to click these links to the NCQA Antibiotic Stewardship Program and to Pew's Antibiotic Resistance Project. Lots to read, watch, and learn, and all of it will help exponentially to make the world safer, healthier, and wiser. And now for our Fast Facts segment. In each episode, I throw you some fast facts on a specific theme, give you some numbers to toss around in your head, and to share. Let's continue the journey through antibiotics awareness. According to research from the Pew Charitable Trusts and the CDC, an estimated 30% of outpatient antibiotic prescriptions are unnecessary. This has led to antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which caused more than 2.8 million infections and 35,000 deaths in the United States each year. Beyond adverse patient outcomes, antibiotic resistance also contributes to excess healthcare costs. For instance, unnecessary antibiotic prescribing for upper respiratory tract infections and influenza increased healthcare costs by more than $20 million in 2017. And in some cases, antibiotic-resistant infections have no treatment options at all. By the way, as the cold and harsh weather are hitting home throughout the country now, know that outpatient antibiotic prescribing takes place most often in the winter months. I want to say a bit more about the NCQA Antibiotic Stewardship Program Toolkit, the how-to toolkit as they call it, if you're interested in advancing antibiotic stewardship, and you should be, you can do any of the following. 
you can learn about the importance of appropriate antibiotic prescribing versus the dangers of inappropriate prescribing. Learn how practices monitor their HEDIS measure rates to reduce antibiotic prescribing. Learn how health plans can collaborate with their state local governments to uh, reduce inappropriate prescribing. And you can watch any of the five five recent webinars on antibiotics stewardship. A lot of work went into this toolkit. Okay, switching topics now. Here's a quick note as we look back at this year's and this month's Health Innovation Summit. I conducted 14 interviews from our Glass Enclosed Podcast Center at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in Washington, D.C., most of which are already available online in podcast episode and mini-episode form. And soon enough, I'll be putting together a retrospective of the podcast experience at the summit, so stay tuned. Meanwhile, keep checking ncqa.org and ncqasummit.com for more details on the 2023 summit as well as our ninth Quality Talks event coming up this spring. And now, loyal Inside Healthcare listener, we want to hear from you, your comments on the show, your thoughts for future show topics, your ideas for guests. We're always looking for input, for inspiration, and we welcome your feedback. So drop us a line sometime at communications.ncqa.org. Now, in the meantime, let me leave you with a question for you to consider, and then you should call in, write in, and tell us uh, what you think. What system-wide obstacles currently present challenges to antibiotic stewardship? So keep that running around. I, I have an answer myself, but this isn't about me. It's about you. So send us your thoughts at communications.ncqa.org, and I know you've got something to say. Well, that's all there is for the 93rd edition of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Why not go back and listen to the last 30 episodes or so? And here's a little inside baseball. Our first episode of this year of 2022, where we talked with equity leaders about the launch of NCQA's health equity accreditation programs, that episode is gearing up to be our highest rated episode of the year. So tune in, spread the word about the show, Maybe I'll find a couple more details I can tell you about the show. And again, let us know what you think. And in this season of Thanksgiving, I want to thank you for your continued support, your listenership, and your enthusiasm for Inside Healthcare. I know it, I heard it, and I felt it live with the over 1,300 people who are at our summit. And I just want to keep expressing it to you on behalf of the award-winning communications team here at NCQA. I'm Dave Smolar, and we'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.